night at 10 o'clock right here on your community radio station, WERU, 89.9 Blue Hill, streaming online at WERU.org. Support for WERU health-related programming comes from the Penobscot Bay Press, committed to providing community news and information, publishing three weekly newspapers, the Weekly Packet, Island Advantages, the Castine Patriot, the annual Bay Community Register, the Summer Seasonal Guide, and more. Also on the web at www.penobscotbaypress.com. And the time is 10 o'clock. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming worldwide at weru.org. Time for Healthy Options with your host, Andre Bella. This is Healthy Options, and I'm Andre Bella, your host for today. Today we'll be speaking with Peter Christ, a co-founder of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. We'll be talking about the legalization and regulation of all drugs. This is a very hot topic, and this is a live call-in show. So at the half hour, please call us with your questions, comments, opinions, pro and con. All opinions are welcome. Um, please, we have only one phone line today for incoming calls, so be patient with us and hang in with us if it takes you a little bit of time to get on the air today. We expect quite a few phone calls. Uh, I'll give you that number now, although we won't be accepting any calls for another half an hour, but the number is 866-625-9378. That's 866-625-9378. Seven, eight. So today we're going to be talking with Peter Christ from LEAP about the legalization of all drugs. I thought just as a background, I would read uh, a statement from the LEAP website, and I do encourage all of you to check out the website. It's very comprehensive, has lots of information. Um, LEAP stands for Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. It is a nonprofit organization formed by cops, judges, and others in the criminal justice system who believe the war on drugs has been an expensive failure that has only made our nation's tragic drug problem worse. After devoting their careers to being frontline warriors in the war on drugs, our members have come to believe that the only way to reduce drug abuse and the many harms associated with our current approach to the problem is by legalizing and regulating illicit drugs. Our prime purpose as an organization is to give presentations and foster discussion about responsible alternatives to the war on drugs. And this morning, we are fortunate to have Peter Christ, who is a co-founder of LEAP. Um, Peter is retired as a police captain after a 20-year career enforcing drug laws. From the beginning, he believed that the drug war can never be won, and it's doing more harm than good. After retiring in 1989, Peter began speaking out publicly against that war, and in 1993, he became one of the first members of Reconsider, one of the original forums on drug policy involving speakers from many diverse backgrounds. Peter then originated the idea of creating LEAP, 
a drug policy reform group of current and former members of law enforcement modeled on the Vietnam veterans against the war. In 2002, after four years of Peter's preparation, LEAP finally emerged as a viable international nonprofit educational organization. Christ is one of the most experienced of the LEAP speakers, having performed before hundreds of civic, professional, educational, and religious organizations, plus conducting television and radio interviews in dozens of markets. Peter speaks of the drug war's impact on police-community relations, the safety of law enforcement officers and suspects, police corruption and misconduct, and the financial and human costs associated with current drug policies. These issues include the effect of drug prohibition on the judiciary, sentencing issues, prison populations, and minority communities, as well as the usefulness of drug education programs in reducing drug abuse. Peter, we feel extremely fortunate to have you here this morning on Healthy Options. Welcome. Well, Andrew, thank you, and thank you for sharing your audience with me. I appreciate the opportunity. Wonderful. Well, um, I, I would love to hear you um, begin by giving us a little bit about your background and what, what was it like to be a police officer uh, when the war on drugs began. Let's well, start there. Was, okay. Uh, well, I started out in 1946 when I was born. It's <laughs> a good place and, to start. Uh, both, both, it was always a good start. And uh, both my parents were 42 years old when I was born. I was a little bit of a surprise. They already had two children at home. <laughs> and uh, both of them were born in 1906, and they had been young adults during alcohol prohibition. So I got a little look at alcohol prohibition from somebody that grew up on the Canadian border in Buffalo, New York, my mother and father. And I would ask them, when the Untouchables came on television, I was fascinated with that program, just like the youth of today is fascinated with the gangsters and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I would always ask them why it didn't work. And my mother would say, because the people didn't support it. In other words, it would have worked if there had been support for it. My father, on the other hand, when I would say, why didn't it work, he said, because it was a stupid idea. <laughs> All right. Well, when I got to be about 17, 18 years old, I came to the understanding that we had passed a constitutional amendment. We amended the Constitution to enact alcohol prohibition. Now, that isn't just somebody passing a law. That's changing the fundamental document of our nation. And so that took a lot of support. So now my mother's argument that there wasn't enough support for it didn't seem to make it anymore because there was a lot of support for it. And then I kind of looked at my father's argument that it was a dumb idea, and I started looking at it, and I realized that when you are dealing with consensual adult activity, when you are dealing with things that people, adults, want to do with each other, like drink alcohol, buy and sell alcohol, when you prohibit that, you do not, in fact, make that problem go away, but what you do is you create an underground marketplace. And with the underground marketplaces, you get things that you don't get with normal marketplaces, and that is gang violence, crime, that kind of stuff. And that my father, in fact, had been right. It was a dumb idea from the beginning. Then I took that information, and I looked at our society, and I saw alcohol prohibition, or drug prohibition. And I said, well, isn't this kind of the same thing? I mean, these are things that people want to do. You know, we have this vision of every drug user is an addict, well, that simply isn't true. The addiction rate for all drugs is about 10 to 15 percent, 
of the people that use them become addicted. The rest of those people are casual users. In fact, I was just watching something on uh, uh, one of the uh, programs on television. They were talking about uh, our fascination with all these new electronic gadgets and everything, and they started calling it an addiction. Mm-hmm. And they did a study in some country on the use of these things, and they found out that 10 to 15% of the people that use these these things, you know, blackberries, that kind of stuff, are in fact addicted, mm-hmm. which is that 10 to 15%. You have that in everything. It is. It seems like 10 to 15% of our population, when they do something, they just can't get enough of it, so they keep doing more and more and more, whatever it is. Yeah, an addictive personality, perhaps, exactly. or a tendency towards addiction. Yeah. Exactly. And, and those people need understanding, and if the thing that they're doing is harmful and they want help for it, their help should be available, and so on and so forth, to help them work through their problems to get off that, that addiction. But that isn't a problem. You know, when you talk about Internet addiction, we're not talking about drugs here, we, but we're talking about addiction. And here's the thing about addiction. What bothers us as individuals about addiction, if there's a person who's around us who's an addict, what that person does and why we don't like it is they lie, they cheat, and they steal in order to maintain the addiction. Now, just to be clear, I don't mean that they go out and rob banks when I say steal, but they steal time from their family, they lie to their family about what they're doing, they, they cheat their family out of the time that they should have with them and stuff like that. So these are all the addiction processes that the rest of us don't like. And a lot of times the thing that the person is addicted to when they're doing that, like, for instance, Bill Bennett, former drug czar, who admitted to his gambling addiction, okay, he lied to his wife, I'm sure, about where the money was going. He cheated. He stole from the family the money that he said he was going to do one thing with, and, and he went and stuck it in the slot machine or whatever. That is the process of addiction. We have two problems in our society that we have labeled as being one. We call it the drug problem. We hear about an overdose someplace, and we say the drug problem. But then we hear about a drive-by shooting to someplace, that violence on the Mexican border, that is reported to us through the news as drug-related violence. So we then say, ah, the drug problem. And we pretend like these two things are connected or the same. They are, in fact, connected, but they are not the same. The drug problem, the use and abuse of these very dangerous substances, that is a problem that is going to be with us as long as there are human beings on this planet. People are going to find ways to alter their consciousness, and they're going to do, they're going to do drugs. That's just the way life is. That's the way our human species is. On the other hand, that drug shooting, that violence on the Mexican border, that isn't drug violence. That's drug policy violence. That's because we are choosing in this society, again, a policy of prohibition to deal with our drug problem rather than a regulated, controlled marketplace. And as long as we have the prohibition in effect, we will continue to finance gangsters and thugs and terrorists throughout the world on this illegal marketplace. The U.N. estimates the worldwide drug trade, illegal drug trade, is a $500 billion a year industry. Now, that's an awful lot of money to tell people, ah, you shouldn't do that. You know, we'll put you in jail if you do it. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't deter, that threat doesn't deter people from it. And, in fact, it creates more violence and crime in our society. And that's why the prohibition has to end. 
And then what we have to do is deal with our drug problem as an education and a health care problem that it truly is and stop financing gangsters and thugs. Yeah, I, on, the, on the website, I think I was looking at some statistics and they showed the percentage of the population that they thought was addicted before um, the war on drugs started as a policy and the, uh, the rate, I don't know, in the, in the 80s or 90s sometime, the rate now it seemed to be exactly the same after all this money. Exactly. We have, we, we have a little bit under 2% of our population that are going to become addicted, and that's always been the same. No matter what the laws have been, that statistic has remained the same. And that's what we have to deal with, and that's what we have to focus on. And that's where we have to look at some of our successes. Look at what we have done with the use of nicotine in this society, one of the most addictive drugs we know of, tobacco. Mm-hmm. We have cut 50% of the adult population that was using this drug have quit. Now, we did that without burning one tobacco field, without arresting one tobacco dealer. We did that by educating the public. We did that by using a little something we learned from the Amish, and that's called shunning. You know, you, it's, you know mm-hmm. if you want to smoke, mm-hmm. it's okay, but you've got to go outside. <laughs> you know, we made it inconvenient, yep. which, which, by the way, I, I happen to still be a smoker. I've been a smoker for 40 years. And I am not upset about these things that we have done because they have been peaceful, they haven't created an underground marketplace, and they've reduced the number of people that are smoking. And the fact that I, in fact, one of the arguments that I get about legalizing drugs is that if we legalize drugs, what kind of a message does that send to our children? It's condoning. Mm, we're, saying, yeah. you know, we're saying it's okay. And Well, mm-hmm. I'll tell you something right now. As a cigarette smoker, I remember when I was thoroughly and completely condoned in this society. I remember when I could get on an airplane in Los Angeles and smoke all the way to New York City. I remember that I never asked if I could smoke when I walked into a building. All I did was ask for an ashtray. Mm-hmm. I never had to check at a hotel for a smoking room because all the rooms were smoking rooms. Now, that was thoroughly condoned. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I can remember as a as a kid too. Every movie star you saw, uh, male or female, had a cigarette hanging out of their exactly. mouth, and it was this you know very kind of cool thing. And we had the Marlboro Man, and exactly. we had all of that, and and that's all gone now, and everybody's fine. Now I don't feel. I was just going to say I don't feel condoned anymore. <laughs> yeah. I now feel barely tolerated, tolerated <laughs> yeah, right. by the rest yes. of society. Yes. And, I, yes. and I point that out because my drug is perfectly legal. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not violating any laws by smoking right. or whatever, but I am not condoned. Well, so and, you're, just, and you're not harming anybody. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Okay. And you're taking personal responsibility for whatever. Sure. Exactly. I pay mm-hmm. my health care insurance and I take care of myself and do whatever I do, but that is my... Mm-hmm choice that I make. And mm-hmm. other people are out there making other choices about what they do with their lives. And if I want to go into a quit smoking program, they're readily available. They're, you know, I can do that if I want to. And as long as I don't bother other people and stuff like that, I'm left alone. That's what we have to deal. We have to deglamorize, And that's part of legalization is deglamorizing the drug use in our society. Mm-hmm. You know, we did a we did a wonderful thing in 1933. We ended alcohol prohibition, which was a big blow to Al Capone and all the gangsters. Took a lot of money away from them. Yeah. And But we did a stupid thing in 1933, and that is we went on a 50-year journey of pretending we didn't have an alcohol problem in this society. 
You know, it used to be cool. To, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you watch Mad Men on television, but it shows how prevalent drinking was back in the 60s, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Every place you went, there were cocktails and everything. It right. wasn't until Mothers Against Drunk Driving came along mm-hmm. and started sensitizing us to the problem of alcohol. And for the last 20 years, we have greatly changed the way we use alcohol in society. We use it much more responsible now. I don't want us to go on a, if we, well, we, not if, when we legalize drugs, I don't want us to go on a 50-year bender pretending we don't have a problem. I want us to, to legalize it and regulate and control it and understand the problem right at the beginning and deal with our problems that we have with drugs. But let's get the, the mm-hmm. violence off our streets and the gangsters and all that other stuff. Why are we financing these people? And that's all we're doing. Well, and, and certainly I think everyone's concerned about the economy and money and what things are costing. And um, what about uh, the, the expense of incarceration? I mean, how has that affected this whole issue? Well, our, our total budget for the drug bill uh, nationally is about $70 billion a year. That's what we're spending. Now, in- included in that is the thing we're doing in foreign countries. It's our prison population. We have the largest prison population on the planet, and a little bit under 50% of those prison cells are filled by nonviolent drug offenders. And I, and I want to tell your audience one other thing, too, that they should not forget. In the United States of America, with the largest, most efficient prison population, prison system on the planet, we do not have one drug-free prison. Not one. Mm-hmm. If we can't keep drugs out of prison. Who is going to be delusional enough to think we can keep them out of a free society? You know, and I just point that out because that shows the absurdity of this policy. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm, I was interested also in the website that that, that clear, um, clear understanding that LEAP is really looking at taking the crime and violence out of the drug issue and, and also understanding that there needs to be a follow-up on rehabilitation, helping people with addictions, but that that is not the responsibility of law enforcement people. Exactly. Our job in law enforcement is very clear, and we are given a power that no other organization in our society is given, and that is we are giving the power to use physical force, including deadly physical force, against our own citizens. Even the military cannot be used against their own citizens unless there's really a, you know, a state of national emergency or something like that. But every day we have cops out there walking around with this power given to them by the government. And the reason the government gives them this power is because their job is to protect people from each other, not mm-hmm. to protect people from themselves. themselves. That is not a function of law enforcement. And when you look at things like the drug laws, that's exactly what we're trying to do. And when you misuse a tool, you get bad results. And we're seeing the results of this. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that the first off, the failure. You know, in police work, the only type of police work that we measured our success by the fact that we made more arrests this year than we did last year is drugs. Every other thing, we claim our successes in law enforcement because we make less arrests next year than we did last year because we took those bad people out of society that were robbing the bank or raping people and because they were removed from the general society because of our actions now we have a safer society in 
it's interesting to me. We keep talking about the government keeps coming out with these studies, and I love them. Drug use is down. You know, the drug use so much. How do you do that study? Mm-hmm. How do you go around knocking on people's door and saying, <laughs> hi, I'm from the federal government. What illegal drugs have you used in the last uh, How do you get an honest yeah. answer to yeah. that? You know, I, I use mm-hmm. this example all the time. I, I, I look around now in our society, and I see gay people everywhere. Everywhere I go, there's gay people now. Every time I turn on my television, there's gay people. I see gay people all the time. It wasn't like this 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I hardly ever saw gay people. Now, I look at this and I ask myself the question that needs to be asked. Why are all these straight people turning gay? Because the only way there's more gay people is if people are changing. But we know the truth, don't we? We don't have one more gay person in America than we did 10 years ago. The only thing that changed is the rest of us stopped being jerks about it. And now these people are willing to stand out and say, I'm gay. Mm-hmm. And, they, and knowing nothing will happen to them for it. Mm-hmm. Once we legalize drugs, we're going to think we see an explosion in drug use. Everybody listening to us right now knows an illegal drug user. I guarantee you that everybody knows at least one. Mm-hmm. And I say that because they're in families, they're in workplaces, they're everywhere. The only thing is most of the people out there don't know who that illegal drug user is today because it's illegal, and we don't share that information with other people. Once we legalize, these people are going to become visible, and then we're going to have this, this thought that we had an increase in use, when in reality, all they did was become visible. And once they're visible, now we can start getting them the help, if they're addicted, that they need to deal with their drug problem. And if they aren't addicted, and if they're just casually using these drugs and doing it for whatever reason, like people to have a cocktail when they get home from work on Friday or whatever, why are we concerned about them? The only real danger they're in is because it's an illegal marketplace, they don't have any guarantee over their purity, so their risk of having a problem is a little bit greater. Once you're in a regulated and controlled mm-hmm. marketplace, you eliminate that problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how has, are there other countries who have tried you know, legalization, and how, what's been some of the results of that? Well, first, uh, I have people say to me, well, you have legal marijuana in Amsterdam, and, and, you know, and my answer is, no, they don't. It's not legal. Uh, there's an international drug control treaty that was signed back in the 70s that the United States stuck a section into that says nobody that signs this treaty will legalize drugs. So in Holland, marijuana is illegal. They just don't arrest anybody for it, and they allow people to sell it in cafes, and they regulate and control it. So that's it's a way a- of getting away around that. Yeah, okay. it, that without violating the treaty. So it's still illegal, <laughs> yeah. but, they, yeah. they, you know, it's kind of like the medical marijuana thing that we've seen in about, you know, 14 states in the United States now. Uh-huh. That have to get around that, that, that uh, federal prohibition on marijuana. Right. Their successes have been, have been well documented. They have much, their starting age use for marijuana in Holland is 17 on mm-hmm. average. Mm-hmm. Ours is 13 with our prohibition in effect. They have my, if you're a heroin addict and you're in Holland and you, 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 cannot, you cannot get a, a connection or a fix, you know who you go to? A police officer. And they direct you to a clinic. Yeah. They don't arrest you. Yeah. They direct you to a clinic because they yeah. say this person needs help. A lot of other uh, Western European states, uh, Portugal, Italy, have decriminalized personal possession. They have it legalized, but they don't arrest people for personal possession. 
and they're seeing great changes in this culture that they had before. They're seeing a decrease in violence mm-hmm. because they're reducing the number of arrests that they're making. They're seeing a reduction in their prison system, and they're also seeing more availability to treatment for the people that have problems that get help. These are things we know work. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, one of, one of the most moving things that I saw on your website was that video, I think it's with um, Jack Cole, when he talks about being a young cop, and undercover agent, and busting young kids uh, if they just passed him, you know, a, a marijuana joint. Right. And, and his, really hearing that is quite heart-wrenching hearing it from his point of view. And uh, the, the personal angst that he's gone through over the years because he sent these young kids to prison uh, f- for this. I mean, they didn't do anything violent, and they spent, you know, years in jail for, for what? Yeah, he tells, uh, he, t- he tells a wonderful story about he was working with a, 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 a snitch. You know, they were trying to make a buy, and they got mugged by the people they were going to buy the drugs from, and they got beat up. And this other guy came over to them after the they had been beaten up and they were, I don't know, sitting on a doorstep or whatever and, and tried to give him some help and gave him some advice and said, look, it, don't deal with those people over on that corner. You shouldn't do drugs. They're bad for you. But if you want drugs, go talk to these people over on the other corner over here because these people are not like those people. They won't rob you. You know, they'll, they'll treat you right and stuff like that. Well, when he wrote up his report, he put that guy's name in his report. That guy was subsequently arrested yeah, yeah. and convicted because he advised them to where to go to buy drugs. Now, this was a good oh. Samaritan who oh. came to help them. Ouch. And, and those yeah. are the kind of things yeah. that, I, yeah. I mean, I'm, I am yeah. in our organization, uh, the only word to describe me is a hypocrite because I came into this business of law enforcement uh, mm-hmm. believing that the drug war was a terrible idea, and yet I enforce these laws anyway, so... If anybody's looking for the word that you call a person that does that, the word is hypocrite. So I, I understand that. Well, it, I'm not, a, I'm not yeah. offended by it. it. It's pretty. It's pretty moving. Some of the things that I I read and watched on the website of um, of cops who were these young tough guys that went right. kicking in doors and you know making all these big arrests and and how they actually have felt about it later on. Oh is, yeah, it's pretty moving. Yeah. There's a lot of PSD in law enforcement. You know, post-traumatic yeah. stress disorder because of the things that they that they've I'm sure. done and so and so forth, I'm and sure. they did them enforcing the laws. I mean, yes. they, I'm not talking about they did anything illegal or anything like that. They did everything. They that were they, doing their job, yeah. Exactly, and yeah. and I have cops say to me, uh, I sometimes have them at presentations, local cops and stuff, and they'll say, "Well, I'm a working law enforcement officer. What do you tell me to do?" And if I agree with you, and my answer is, my first thing I tell you to do is you took an oath to enforce the laws, enforce the laws. That's your job. That's what you said you would do. Your honor is involved in that. You took an oath. Do your job. But that doesn't stop you when you get off duty from questioning that policy and asking if maybe there isn't another way. So it doesn't stop you from speaking out, but you would have no right not to do your job. You know, you, you... Take an oath. You say you're going to do your job. You should do your job. Well, I'm I'm very impressed with those of you who've had long careers in law enforcement and now are retired and have yep. chosen this as something that you've you know basically dedicated your lives to changing, and and that's that's pretty impressive. That's extremely impressive. Well, it's when you see you know the the, the, the it's that old line that bad things happen because good people stay silent. Yeah. 
and you can't have that. And and a lot of us are in it for a lot of different reasons. A, a, a lot of us have very different views about how these drugs should be regulated. But we all agree, all the law enforcement people at LEAP agree, that before we have any meaningful change or any meaningful approach to our drug problem, the first thing we have to do is end the prohibition. It's that old thing about if you're in a hole and you don't want to be in a hole, the first thing you should do is stop digging. Right. And that's kind of where we're at here. Yeah. First, we have to stop yeah. the prohibition. Then we have to seek out ways on how to regulate these very dangerous drugs. Mm -hmm. It would seem to me from, um, and I'd like to know your comment on this, from an economic standpoint, if we weren't filling up so much of our prisons with uh, nonviolent people who, you know, are drug dealers, that maybe that money could be transferred into rehabilitation for people who have uh, addiction problems. Absolutely. As I said, 50% of our prison cells, that's, uh, we're, we're at over, I think we're at about 2.5 million total prison populations. You're talking about over a million people incarcerated that, would, that shouldn't be. And on average, that's $25,000, $30,000 per person per year. So I'll let, your, I'll let your audience do the math, but it's, mm -hmm. it's a big number. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, 30,000 mm -hmm. times a million, that mm -hmm. gets you up into those B and trillion dollar positions and stuff. And that money is wasted. That money is purely wasted. We're not accomplishing anything. We're destroying lives. Uh, we have a saying at LEAP that nobody, uh, a lot of people recover from their addiction. Nobody recovers from their conviction. Uh, when you, if you're an addict and you get yourself cleaned up and you go back into the workforce, when you mm -hmm. fill out a job application, nobody asks you if you were ever a drug addict. That's mm -hmm. not part of the question. Mm -hmm. But they all want to know if you've got a criminal record. And that is not a door opener to getting a job. So we and, and there's one thing that everybody should understand about the prison population in this country. Ninety percent of the incarcerated people in America have one thing in common, and that is they're coming home. Now, you have to understand that. Only about 10 percent of our prison population are in there for life. The rest are eventually coming home. Might be five years, seven years. And you have to think, if you had a problem with somebody and you sent them away, do you want them coming home the same way they were when you sent them away or worse, or do you want them coming home better? Because they are coming home. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're, we're creating this environment of these unemployable criminals, and they have nothing else to do, and we sent them off to an educational facility for five or seven years called the prison system where they're educated in how to be a better criminal so they don't have to come back. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, you're being educated all by people that came back. <laughs> well, but, and then when you look at this, at this economy, if somebody is re-entering their community after, um, you know, serving some time, right. um, are, they, are they going to uh, go for McDonald's at eight fifty an hour, or are they going to go back into the drug business where they made a heck of a lot more money than that? Exactly, exactly. In fact, I, I had, uh, when we talk about how ways then the drug war, I had a guy say to me many years ago that this drug war could be over with tomorrow if we, if we get every illegal drug user in America, every person in America that uses an illegal drug on Monday morning to turn themselves in at the local police station <laughs> and demand their prison cells. <laughs> and when we got 20 million people yeah. standing there saying, lock me up, 
I'm mm-hmm. a drug user. Mm-hmm. I think then maybe we'll start to make it a little bit more clear to us how absurd this policy is, mm-hmm. you know, because we just yeah. don't have the room for all those yeah. people. Yeah. You know. I want to remind everyone that we are speaking with Peter Christ, who is a co-founder of Leap Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And we are at the half hour. This is a call-in show, so we encourage you to call in. Uh, we're going to take a short break, but the number is 866-625-9378, so please call. Welcome back to Healthy Options. Uh, we've been speaking with Peter Christ, co-founder of Leap Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and we have been talking about the legalization of all drugs. This is a call-in show. The number is 866-625-9378, and we do have a caller on the line. Go ahead, hello? caller. Yes, hello. Good morning. Yes, uh, I just want to thank this fellow. What's his name? Chris? Peter Christ. Peter. Yep, Peter Chris. Thank you, Peter. You're a fine person. Well, I uh, I make a point of every time I see a policeman, I shake their hand and I say hello, introduce myself, and uh, I make sure they understand that I appreciate they appreciate that they're out there because they're risking their lives dealing with people that generally are very difficult to deal with. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a pot smoker. And I think it's just outrageous, simply outrageous that things have gone the way they've gone over the last 40, 50 years. Thank you very much, sir. Okay, well, thank you for, the, for, for your feeling about us, and uh, that's true. We have, it's, uh, there's, there's a chief, or commissioner of the fire department in uh, New York City who once, when giving a speech, said that heroism in firework is not going into the burning building and stuff like that, that's your job. Heroism is becoming a fireman or a fire person, you know, to yep. get into that profession. And it's the same thing with police work. You know, you say, you know, when there's shots fired, an intelligent person heads the other way. <laughs> yeah. A cop heads toward where the shots are being fired. That's, that's what right. they're paid to do. And they I deserve the respect that, 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 that they earn every day in this country by doing that job. And I am very proud that I spent 20 years in that profession, and I'm trying to get, in fact, it's funny, I mentioned I have cops at presentations. A lot of times they come up to me at the end of the presentation privately, and they say, keep up the good work, get us out of this, because they realize what this is doing to the profession. And what has to happen is everybody has to get together to help us all out of this. Mm-hmm. Well, I, uh... it's, it's an educational thing, you know. It's, uh, we, we have done... In our history in this country, we have done profoundly stupid things for long periods of time before. Uh, Slavery, slavery, stupid idea. Segregation, stupid idea. I'll give you another one. Uh, Andre, I want to thank you because you represent a group of people 
who studied real hard, and finally, by 1920, women became intelligent enough to vote. I think that's really wonderful that you all... Now, obviously, I'm being facetious here. And the way this has happened is people have come forward. Exactly. Lots of people have come forward, and that's what it's going to take. And questioned it. In the 1830s, the women's rights movement started in this country. Those people spoke all through the 1800s into the early part of the 20th century and never saw the right to vote. But if they hadn't done the work that they did... It might have been 1930 or 1940 before we finally ended that stupid policy of not letting half of our population vote in this country. So sac- we've done dumb things. The people have made over the eons for things that they believe in. Mm-hmm. It has cost them, but it's it saves society. Well, yeah, and it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it, it's that stupid, what I, I refer to the stupid, crazy genius thing. You know, the first person that comes up with a new idea is called by everybody else stupid. And then if they persist in that new idea, they're then called crazy. And then once the rest of us catch up and figure out that they were right, we call those people geniuses, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so yeah. we've gone through that in our history as a species on this planet, and I'm sure we'll continue to do it. But I, I'm not going to – I can't sit there and look at the stupidity and not speak out against it. But thank you for your support and your call. Thank you very much. You know, I also want to talk about, um, suppose uh, the mother of a teenager is listening to the show and she's thinking, well, you know, this is really a great idea, but um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold my question for a second because I think we have another call coming okay. in. But I, I want to address that, that reluctant teenage mother. We do okay. have another call, caller. Are you on the line? Hi. Yes, I just, how are you? Good. Um, I just want to make the point that our last three presidents have used illegal drugs, you know, to make the point where 20 million people would be in line to get arrested. Yeah, exactly. And, in fact, it's interesting because if any of them had been arrested for that drug use, they never would have been president. Exactly. And so the it's only such an thing, unfair rule, a law. Well, yeah, the only thing that they were was not arrested. That's you right. Know, it wasn't that they didn't use drugs. It's that they weren't arrested for it. And I'm glad that they weren't, and I'm glad for everybody that isn't. You know, I mean, it's, I'm not glad for their drug use, but I'm glad that they at least haven't run into the criminal justice system and had that be a problem in their life besides whatever other problems they have. But, yeah, it's the, it's the absurdity of this thing, that to stand up and say, yeah, I did that, and I think people that did the same thing I did ought to be put in prison. Right. You know, exactly. I mean, you know, it's it just it's absurd. But when you have a stupid failed policy, it's amazing the stupid things you say and do in order to make it seem like it's working. Right. Well, I, I just wanted to point out that people who do illegal drugs are not bad, and they can go on and do great things. Exactly. Exactly. So, thanks. Right Thank you for calling. You were talking about that mother with the teenager. Yeah, who might be listening to the show and saying, uh, ideologically and philosophically, this sounds great, but, you know, I'm a little bit nervous about my 16-year-old, and if these drugs were all made uh, legal and available, um, what would happen? Well, what we would see is a huge decrease in crime and violence in our society because we have, uh, according to a study done by the federal government back in the late 80s, in New York City, they looked at, crime, at drug-related violence, and they determined that 75% of the violence associated with drugs was marketplace violence. That's mm-hmm. people fighting over the violence. Now, 25% of 
was people getting high on the drugs and driving and hurting somebody or doing something stupid or whatever on drugs. Mm -hmm. But that's only 25% of the violence. 75% is the marketplace. We can shut Mm -hmm. that marketplace down tomorrow. Mm -hmm. We can close it down by giving it to regulated and controlled marketplace of some sort. We control distribution. We control regulation. And it's interesting. I happen to be a non-breeder. I've been married to the same lady for 37 years, but we both decided we weren't interested in having children, so we didn't have any. And I made a promise (laughs) that's coming true now to all my friends that had children, and that promise was, I will maintain for you any lie you told your children about your youth until your youngest child turns 21. (laughs) And then all bets are are off, okay? (laughs) And I have a lot of very nervous friends when I'm around their kids now because they've been telling them, oh, I never did that, I never did this, I never did that. And all of a sudden there's this guy that grew up with them that's saying, you know, that was okay when your kid was 16, but they're 21 years old, they got their own life now. Let's be honest with them. Yes, and being honest with kids is a a big issue. I think we have another caller on the line. Welcome. Hello. Hello. I really appreciate your show. I, I worked in Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx in the mid, oh, early, mid-1980s. And there was a psychiatrist there named Mike Smith. And they started using ear acupuncture, points in the ear for treatment. Mm-hmm. And it was, the Chinese really came up with it because of opium addiction. Right. So we'd have all the, we'd have several hundred patients a day come into Lincoln Hospital, and they would sit in chairs in the room, and we'd needle them in the ears, and then they could go to AA and NA. But what we found was exactly what you're saying, that a lot, the majority of our patients were, they were just trying to get by. They were suffering from all kinds of traumas, uh, post-traumatic stress, physical, sexual, mental abuse. They were poor. And, you know, drugs were an escape for them. And we had a cr- crack cocaine was really the big drug at the time. And we yep. had a crack house that was right across the street from the hospital. And some of us went to Mike Smith's one day. And, you know, we were young uh, students. And we said, boy, you know, we ought to call the police and get that crack house shut down. And he said, if we shut it down over there, it's going to move 20 feet yep. into another b- burned-out house over there. He said, at least we know which ones of our patients <laughs> that are walking out of there are using or not using. And, you know, you know I, I think the more we can do to decriminalize and to get treatment, um, and, and I know drug courts now, a lot of drug courts in places like Miami and other states use acupuncture and other modalities for, for treatment, but that, that is really the key. It's interesting when you mentioned the crack house, one of the examples I use is if I'm going to move to your community, and open up a tavern, okay? I'm going to sell alcohol, a very dangerous drug in your community. What do I have to do? Well, I'm assuming that I probably have to first get a hold of the state of Maine and get a license, and then I have to come to your community and talk to the zoning board and see where I'm allowed to put that business at. And then when I open the business, you're going to set the hours of my operation and what age I can sell to, and you're going to regulate and control my activity. Now, if I want to move to your community and open up a crack house, who do I talk to? Well, nobody. If there's a local crack dealer, I might have to rub him out first before I open up my business. But I open it up someplace, and I do business there and make money. 
And then when the police close that, just as you just said earlier, I don't shut down my operation. I just move to another location and start doing business again. There's no regulation. There's no control. Nobody has any control over the purity of my hours of operation or what neighborhood I operate in. I determine all that. This is not a good system. It's a much better system if we have regulation and control over it. And I, I, have some, some, I have some libertarian people who say, well, that's a government right. I go, no, it doesn't have to be government. It could be, you know, it could be corporate regulation. Whatever we decide, I don't have any recommendation. And we at LEAP have no recommendation for how these drugs should be regulated. Well, some of us feel one way, some of us feel another way once it comes to the regulation question. But what we all agree about is any form, any form of a regulated control marketplace is better than what we have now. Absolutely, and the reduction in violence. I mean, look at what would happen. The Mexican, well, the Mexican people would be awfully happy if we, you know, regulated and legalized drugs in instead of doing in what fact, we're doing. In fact, a past president, Fox, down in Mexico, when he first got into office, actually started a little discussion in Mexico about legalization, regulation, and control, and that he was quickly attacked by us, the U.S. You know, you can't talk about that, you can't talk about that, and he quieted down. But, yeah, they see it down there. They see these people pouring over the border with money in their pockets. You know, it's interesting. When we talk about the drug violence in Mexico, there's two marketplaces in Mexico. There's an illegal drug marketplace, and there's a legal drug marketplace. And they have pharmacies there that sell morphine and sell Viagra, by the way, a recreational drug, Viagra. Um, we all have this thing against recreational drugs, but that's exactly what Viagra is. There's no violence around these pharmacies. There's no shootouts. It isn't drug-related violence. It's the violence is in the marketplace that's illegal, the prohibitionary marketplace. That's where the violence is at. So how, you, do, how do we change the consciousness? Oh, well, it? the first thing, as I said earlier, the first thing you do is don't stay silent. I, I have in my life what I call the five-minute rule. If I talk to another person for five minutes, I talk to them about drug policy because I feel that's one of the most important things that we are currently doing wrong in this country. So we have to not be silent. Radio shows like this, um, I'm sure there's people that, that tuned in at the beginning of the show and thought, drug legalization, this guy's some crazy hippie who thinks everybody ought to get high. Trust me, my recommendation on drugs is this, stay as drug-free as you can stay uh, you know, but I should, don't call you a criminal because you don't take my advice. That's my recommendation on drug use. Well, thank you but, very and much. And now they're listening and they're realizing that, wait a minute, they're not talking about the drugs being okay. This guy's talking about the fact that we have a problem with our policy in this country. And that starts the process. I, get, I do most of my presentations to Rotary Clubs, Kiwanis Clubs, Lions Clubs, you know, those crazy, hippie, lefty, liberal groups like that. <laughs> um... <laughs> I get, two, I get two consistent comments at the end of my presentation. One of them I call the silver comment, and we heard that from yourself and the other callers who say, I agree with everything you say. How are we going to change this? You know, I'm so glad you were here today talking about this. That's the silver comment. The gold comment <coughs> are the people that come up to me at the end of the presentation and say, I never looked at it this way before because those are the people who are starting to see change and are starting to see something from a different perspective. And it takes a long time to change that. You know, over in England, there's still an organization called the Flat Earth Society. Okay? 
So some people just never give up old ideas. But uh, most of us, through time, through time, if given the proper information, we'll get to see it. And again, just don't say silent. And the least you can do is direct them to our website at leap.cc or capsaylegalizeddrugs.com. Either one will get you there or just type leap into Google. We're one of the first things that pops up. Um, send them to our website. Tell them that there's you know, other people that think this way out there, and they're not a bunch of crazy hippies, but they're actually law enforcement people. The, the comment at the beginning about we base this organization on Vietnam veterans against the war, what I meant by that is that that was a group of people during the Vietnam War that spoke against the war who you could not dismiss by saying you don't know what you're talking about. These are all people that were veterans. They went and fought that war for their country, and then they came back to tell the rest of us that this was the wrong war and we shouldn't be there. And you didn't have to agree with them on their conclusion, but you couldn't dismiss them. And I thought that this is what LEAP would bring to the discussion on drug policy. You may not agree with my conclusion or LEAP's conclusion on what we should do, but don't tell me after spending 20 years dragging a badge and a gun around that I don't have an understanding of the problem. I know the problem. Thanks so much, and thanks for the show. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Um, again, uh, you mentioned, Peter, the website, and I think the website is very impressive for the information that's there. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that is on the website, talk about, um, oh, we have another caller, but I do okay. want to get back to the website because okay. there are so many uh, credible uh, people, mainstream people that, that are members of LEAP. We do have another call on the line. Caller, go ahead. Yeah, hi. This is Frank Donnelly in Lemoyne, Maine. And on your drug policy, which is obviously I consider ridiculous, I'm a 64-year-old male on federal bail for an IRS war tax resistance case in Bangor, Maine. I have to call him every day to see if I have to go take a urine test to see if I've smoked marijuana or other drugs. I don't know the drugs. And what a waste of money. I like to, I can't, nobody will tell me what it's costing to do that every, I mean, I'm more addicted to caffeine. I, mean, I come down every morning to get my coffee. I don't come down every day to get a joint. You know, if I smoke pot, I smoke it. If I don't smoke it, I don't smoke it. Who cares? Right. I don't have an addictive personality. Right. I've been in, I've been in federal prison for being a marijuana smuggler back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. It's just a bunch of BS. Well, it was, it's, it's it a way, it's a revenue train. It, but the, the local guys don't want to get rid of it because if you look in the paper, every everybody they stop these days for a speeding ticket or a weaving over the line, even if you pass the sobriety check and don't get arrested for being on alcohol, they want to rummage through your car and they intimidate a lot of people who do it because they're afraid to not let them do it. They find a roach clip, that's 350 bucks. It's a way for these... You look in the paper every week here locally at Podunk down East Maine, and half of the little, you know, arrest things, there's always a little pot involved. You know, some fisherman coming home from a hard day of work, smokes half a joint, gets stopped. That's 350 bucks. Yeah, but it makes it's us a, a much safer... It's an easy way from the cop money. Yeah, well, yeah, that too. And then you have the other thing called civil forfeiture, where they don't even have to arrest you, but they can seize your property just because they suspect that you might, you know, that it, you might be there for drugs or something like that. They're seizing cars in some areas. Oh, don't get it. I really and, commend you being a police officer and coming to the conclusion whenever you did in your career that well, what a, a bunch of buffoonery it was. 
Well, it was in, in prisons. In, oh, I'm probably going to go to jail. And they're going to spend a lot of money on me to send me to a federal prison camp. I mean, I was in federal prison with you know sleazy politicians and governors and senators, Medicaid fraud doctors and pot guys, all nonviolent at a federal prison camp, and it was just a waste of money. Well, wasn't it nice to live in a drug-free environment for a while? Where the best pot in the world came into that. <laughs> <laughs> See, where there were international pot smugglers. I mean, this is before it became violent. It was, you know, it was just back in the days when it was hippie guys bringing sailboats up from Jamaica. Right, the right. In the 70s. And it's, um, I, I, did a, I did a radio show in, uh, it was a woman down in Virginia, and her husband, she mentioned during the show, was a prison doctor. And I said to her, that thing I just said, wasn't. it must be wonderful that he works in a drug-free environment. And she started laughing as soon as I said that, because it was absurd. And we can't I mean, keep drugs. For people who need, to be, who need to be in prison and need to be rehabilitated. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I, uh, I faced a good, maybe up to a year in, in the Hooskow for being a war tax conscientious objector, war tax resist for cheating on and not paying my income taxes, which I'm proud of. Um, and I mean, I'm not preaching anybody. Everybody wants to pay that. Everybody's got their own choice in life. Oh yeah. Um, well, there are, there are any kind of civil stuff like that. I am completely against. You know. Yep. I mean, well, you know, if you want to do drugs, as long as you don't steal anything from me to go do your drug habit, go ahead and do it. If you want to go down the street and pay some woman or some guy for sex, as long as I don't got a watch or any of that stuff, go ahead and do it. If people left people alone and stop being trying to rule everybody's morals on the face we have, of the earth. We have lost the understanding of a word in this country. In fact, we have two monuments to this word that I can think of right off the bat. We have one sitting in the harbor of New York City and one sitting on display, the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. Liberty. And my definition of liberty is the right to be as stupid as you choose to be as long as you do not hurt another person or another person's property. And if you hurt other people or other people's property, I don't care what your excuse for doing that is, then you should run into the criminal justice system. I don't, you know. Yeah. Like a couple of weeks ago, I forgot to call the, well, which I'm glad I forgot to call the 800 number between the hours of 6 p.m. and 10 a.m. All automated to see if I have to go take a urine test. You know, I I forgot about doing it, which I'm I'm glad I did because it wasn't bugging me that much. So I had had to call the probation bail person. They said, you got to drive the banger to do it. I said, I can't wait till the next day or two days. So, I mean, if I'm doing drugs, they're right. there. So I had to drive the banger. She hung, you know, you got to be here by 4.30 and hung up. So I could have violated my bail conditions and had the U.S. Marshals come for something as simple as that. The U.S. Marshals come drag me out of the, my house to throw me in jail because I didn't go to the urine test. Or drive the bangers. I did all the bangers to pee in a cup, you know, for five seconds. So and just, just think of the man hours we paid for and all the stuff that we spent money on for absolutely nothing. You know, I don't and, know what and, it costs. I, I, I bet you well, a couple hundred dollars every time I pee in a cup. We've got yeah. about about three minutes left, okay. so we're probably yeah, it's yeah. unfortunate okay. that this show couldn't show. be longer. Thank you so much for calling. We do have time for one more quick call, 866 Nine three seven eight, and again, Peter has reminded us about the Leap website, so um, you can get more information on Leap. If you haven't had a chance to ask a question and you have a comment, uh, we do have one more question. You can also email us at info at weru dot org. Okay, one more call, quick. 
Okay, this is very, very quick. My name is Bill. I've been smoking marijuana since 1967 and very proud of it. The problem I've got is people fail to realize that you judge a man by what comes out of his mouth, not what goes into it. Thank you very much. Thank you for that comment. Um, Peter, just tell us quickly, in the little bit of time that we have left, people who have um, maybe get the uh, the Golden Bullet Award of saying, I never looked at it this way before after listening to this show, what can they do? What can we all do to support this effort? Well, the, the least you can do is join LEAP. You can go to the website. It costs nothing to join the organization. Uh, you just put your name on our mailing list, so that, that and we count you as a member, so that our numbers grow. Uh, it costs us money to do what we do. We're a nonprofit, so any donations made to us is tax deductible. But a financial donation, even if it's just five dollars or ten dollars, whatever, helps us continue to do the work that we're doing. So that would be very helpful. And and talk to people about this, please, please, please talk to people about this. We need a discussion about this issue in this society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And quickly, do tell us, who are some of those famous people on the, Weep, uh, the LEAP website that support LEAP? I mean, oh, it's, it's pretty it's, impressive. It's, well, it's interesting. We have, I, I like to mention two individuals particularly. One is Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman, ultra-conservative, right-wing kind of guy, okay, economic guy, he talked about before he died, and he became a member of LEAP, uh, and he talked about this issue economically and so on and so forth from his background. And the other one is a guy by the name of Noam Chomsky. And Chomsky, you can't get much further left than Chomsky. He's about as far left as Milton Friedman was right. Okay, so they're all over the Chomsky. political spectrum. Exactly. And Chomsky is a member of LEAP. He also supports us. And I, I don't know this to be a fact. I may be wrong about this. But I'd be willing to bet you that LEAP is the only organization that can claim both Milton Friedman and Noam Chomsky <laughs> as a true. member. That's probably true. <laughs> you know? And, of course, I'm, I'm showing my age here, but I love the support from Walter Cronkite. Oh, Peter, yes, it has been wonderful talking to you. I wish we had another hour. We didn't get to all of the phone calls that we have, but maybe that's for another show. So thank you very much, and thank you all for listening. This is Healthy Options, and please do join us next month.